Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 42 of UAB Green and Told. Original air date, Monday, March 29th, 2021. Through this podcast, we are able to share stories from members of the UAB community. I'm Greg Berry, a UAB alum and assistant director in the UAB Office of Alumni Affairs. Listen back to past episodes of UAB Green and Told on Spotify and the Apple Podcasts app. While there, I'd love for you to leave a written review so we can reach more alumni. On this episode of UAB Green and Told, we welcome Ryan Robinette, a 2006 alumnus, and Dr. Aaron Fobian, a 2011 and 2012 alumna. For many of us, walking is something that is taken for granted every day. But imagine for a moment that one day you forget how to walk, or more accurately, just can't. For Ryan, that was a scary reality he faced just a few years ago. And I honestly did not have any real hope of recovery. As he'll explain, his journey would take him to Minnesota's Mayo Clinic and back to UAB's Spain Park Rehab Center and Dr. Fulbian. We have these patients that we know, you know, they're struggling with these symptoms and, you know, how can we, you know, really help and develop the best rehab therapy for them. Now, Ryan is back walking, but still has no answers as to why what happened to him happened at all. And that's something that he has come to terms with and embraced. Like, it's a very odd thing in medicine to hear, we don't care what caused it, but we can fix it. When interacting with Ryan Robinette, you'd have no idea that his life journey had a major hiccup, but it did. And it happened out of the blue with no warning at all. Yeah, it was a pretty scary event. I was 35 and uh, I was healthy and in in shape and did a lot of exercising and that sort of thing. And, you know, a super long story short, started having some odd neurologic type pain through my fingers and toes, numbness and tingling and that sort of thing. And figured sort of normal stuff, disc going bad or whatever it was. So I was getting some of that checked out. And then uh, I guess two or three days after I started having those odd sensations and the you know pains, uh, I was sitting in a meeting and felt like a band had developed around my thighs and you know looked down and literally had this you know realization that my legs weren't going to work uh, when I tried to stand up. And that was the reality. And so that started a sort of an 18 month process of going crippled, sort of in, in you know, ever increasing measures uh, over the next 18 months. In that meeting when you couldn't stand up, what was going through your mind and, and what did you ultimately do to go home to your wife and family? Yeah, it was, it's a pretty interesting thought process because I, I didn't want to call and freak everybody out and say, hey, I, I can't walk. And I thought maybe I'd just go to the ER and, and get figured out and get in a room and, and then call once the situation was controlled. Thankfully, I, I did not do that. And I, I called my wife and literally I remember the call and I, I literally said, uh, you know, this is weird, hon, but I, I, I can't walk right. And so uh, that started a uh, an odd, uh, you know, chain of events where wound up at, at one of the local hospitals and and did, you know, all the, the tests and, you know, the, the thing that they came back with were you know, really scary results that, you know, thankfully, or the things they were testing for rather were really scary things that, that thankfully were negative and, um, you know, stayed in the hospital for 
I guess, seven or eight days and wound up being, you know, ending that stay at, at UAB. And this was back in 2014. So at the time, your kids were in fourth grade and second grade. Um, yeah, no, it was not the right time. Not that there's any time that is good for a, a, a health thing, but but yes, I had I guess a, a fourth grader and a and, you know a, a second grader, first grader, something like that. But yes, they were little, they were active, and you know very very confused. What were some of the things that doctors were telling you that it could be that they were ruling out? So that if I remember correctly, the doctor, after I, I, I did about two and a half hours in an MRI tube, right, as I hit the emergency room, uh, and they came back and they said, well, it doesn't look like it's a tumor and it doesn't look like he's had a stroke. And so, you know, that put thing in per, things in perspective that we were, you know, dealing with some things that were pretty serious. And then, so that was sort of the first check. And then you go down the path of, ALS and, you know, other, you know, things that are not as common. Multiple sclerosis was, was something that we, you know, checked out and sort of suspected, you know, and, and wound up with a sort of a diagnosis out of exclusion with something called transverse myelitis. But there was, you know, several other things in there. Giambere was one of them that was just tested out. So, this makes sense for the people that, that live in the neurologic world, but it's just sort of non-syllable things that don't make sense to the commoner. And during that time, other motor skills, other things were still there. I mean, you still had all use of your arms. You could move your upper body. It was just the legs and walking. Oddly, I could figure out, and this was sort of, you know, I did a, a you know, months at Spain and, and at Lakeshore, um, but there, we could develop sensory tricks that would allow me to walk normally. Um, now, over time, those sensory tricks went away, and I sort of, at the end of it, ended up on, on with walking aids and sort of, you know, crippled um, on, on, you know, on my way to a wheelchair. But yes, I had normal function and actually figured out that I could run. But literally, the 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 task of walking was the problem. A walking alone because there's video of you walking and bouncing a ball bouncing a ball and i could walk normal i could use if i was on a treadmill this was sort of the first sort of real odd thing but you know work walking on a treadmill and if i just touched ever so lightly on the the support rails then the band that felt i mean it felt very physical uh, but the band that was tightening tight around my, my thighs seemed to release and I could, you know, my gait would return to normal. Throughout the first 18 months of this from 2014 all the way through 2015, what was going on in terms of doctor's appointments and getting seen by physicians? The doctor's visits were constant. And, and one of the real blessings in all of this was even though there weren't real concrete answers and my situation was progressively getting worse, the doctors, you know, especially at UAB did not tire of seeing or hearing from me, but that's not always the case. And I actually talk to a lot of people that deal with sort of the oddities of neurology. Now, one of the things that I tell them is don't get frustrated with the system that the search for answers. And when you can't find something that is definitive, that's often a blessing in disguise because when we can find a stroke or we do find, you know, definitive signs of transverse myelitis or we do find a tumor or ALS, like 
those things are permanent. And when you're looking for for the thing that that you can't really find and you have all these sort of negative tests, but you've got a real physical ailment uh, that seems neurologic, then it's reversible or, or the case is there that it can be reversible. And, uh, and, and that's sort of very frustrating thing for a patient not to get an answer. Looking back on it in the neurologic world, when I didn't get the answer that I actually wanted, I wanted the definition and not getting that was a huge blessing that allowed me to, to ultimately find the recovery that I needed. Ultimately, you would wind up going to the Mayo Clinic, which is another right. world-renowned facility. Why did you go there? What led to going to Mayo? So there was, there, one was I wanted to go somewhere where there was no real preconceived notions of, of anything. It was just basically show up, have a box of records and get a, a really at that time, what would have been a third opinion. And, and I honestly did not have any real hope of recovery. It was just finally get the answer that I was looking for and, you know, quit going to the doctor, you know, maybe quit taking the medicines that I was on or whatever, and just sort of be, be okay being crippled, you know, but no, I had some sort of answer. And that was, that was the, the, the actual hope that I had. And so, you know, I, my, my neurologist at, at UAB, um, which is a, I don't know if anybody's ever, um, you know, advocated for another opinion, but it is a, it's a stressful conversation to have because you care about the care that you're getting. You don't want to lose it, but uh, you also worry that you might be stepping on the toes or, or, you know, doubting your physician, which isn't the case. And, and I can say Dr. Bashir was unbelievable in that conversation. It was his idea to go to Mayo. It was, I didn't recommend that. It was his idea to, he picked the hospital. And when we asked for, you know, a, a third opinion or a second opinion to him, it was, uh, sure, we can send you your Mayo. And, you know, that, so that was a, a very, stressful conversation that that Dr. Bashir made very, very easy and, and ultimately led to my recovery. And I, you know, am forever grateful for it. You wind up at Rochester. What are the doctors telling you? They tried to tell me that they understood it in the beginning, but their messaging wasn't that great. When you go to somewhere like May, when you go to Mayo, Rochester, you, you plan to spend 10 days there. You drop everything, you know, basically move into a hotel and you, you do, you know, all of the battery of, of you know, tests and, and seeing the variety of physicians, you do that in your 10-day your stay, stay there. And so it's a very grueling process. And the last session that I was supposed to have was with physical therapy. And, and I wanted to leave, like it was a, a Friday and, you know, my actual appointment wasn't until Monday. And, you know, there was other things that had me wanting out of Minnesota because I really didn't have any hope and I wasn't getting the definitive answer I wanted. And I, and, and so you sort of fly standby, if you will, to try to get an appointment if you're going to be in the, in the area for the day anyway. And so I, I, I did the standby thing and actually got into their rehab process and to speak, to do the rehab consult. And that was where it all came together. And it's, it's, um, how close I was to skipping that is really amazing. And, and it's not because I was tired. What like I didn't think bad things of them, but I was tired of physical therapy 
because I was in good shape. I was strong. I, I could do push-ups. I, it wasn't about balance and flexibility and, you know, the things that we traditionally think about in, in, um, in rehabilitation. And so I was just going to skip it. And it just, I didn't think there was an answer there and it didn't matter. But then I, I wound up sticking around and, and doing it sort of out of order. And that's where they put it together. They showed me the pamphlet. They said, we get it. You know, your, your, um, your neurologic system is, uh, has a bug in it. Your hardware is good. They talk to me like it's a defect in a computer. I understand computers. It made perfect sense. And so in that period of time, I was there for about four hours and, you know, basically they were retraining me how to walk. And, and what was sort of new and different is that they brought out mirrors to, to show my brain how things work. You know, essentially I was watching myself in the mirror, trying to put this walking thing back together. And so in that there was a few normal steps and I was supposed to come back for uh, a period of time, roughly a week that they had a program where they, you know, treated neurologic movement disorders. And so they didn't care what cost it. That was sort of the difference, right? I was all, I was up there looking for a cure for a, de a definition they didn't care what caused it. They just said, let's fix it. And that was sort of a, a, a bizarre cat, you know, concept. And so, you know, they do a program that's roughly a week long, but there's a year long waiting list of people at the time that could get into it, drop everything, get to Rochester and oh, by the way, pay out of pocket to get to it. But what they told me was, and this is bizarre in neurology, is the more severe that the, the ailment was, and the, the more severe the neurologic movement was, and the more constant it was, the, actually the easier it was to fix. That afternoon, I'm walking with my wife at a snail's pace, like just, you know, it's hard to describe how slow putting one foot in front of another and I, it's in Minnesota, it's a sunny day, but there's a really big snowpack on the ground and I'm watching my shadow and, and it, it literally, you know, creates whatever the feedback mechanism that, that your brains need, your brain needs to, to see and understand what needs to happen. And literally like that, it was like God reached down, touched my head and the band released and all of a sudden I, off I could go and I could walk. And, and so I had my last consult with the neurologist that afternoon and, and those are the results that they're accustomed to see. So you leave Rochester, you come back to Birmingham because that's where you live. You go to Spain Rehab Center to yep. start putting these into practice. You put them into practice, but you're really not making that much progress. So my mission, if there's a year-long waiting list of people trying to get to Rochester, Minnesota, that can pay out of pocket, and I forget the amount, but it was, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to do this program. If there's a year long waiting list to get there, then there has got to be a big patient population that has this bizarre sort of odd neurologic response for a variety of reasons that are either rare or unknown, but the end result is a crippled patient. And so how do we make that treatment in the in the medical miracle that I got available to so many others and not just reserve it for the people that can drop everything and get to Minnesota? 
So Dr. Fobian, let's go ahead and bring you in here. At what point did this kind of become intriguing to you and sound familiar in ways that you're like, wait a minute, I can possibly help. I'm a UAB alum as well. Um, that's where I got my PhD in clinical psychology. I went to do my clinical internship at Baylor College of Medicine. And so I started seeing patients with functional neurological disorder. So that's what, what Ryan is describing. Um, and so I started seeing those in Texas and um, saw a ton of them. And, you know, I started treating it and they, you know, basically sort of in a rehab approach in the way uh, Ryan's describing and it would respond really quickly, which is great because generally as a psychologist, there's not much that I can do that responds that fast. Um, so this, and especially for someone who is this distressed, this disabled, you know, to have this kind of really great rehab treatment to do. And, you know, I was, I thought it was really fascinating. So I started doing some research into it and realizing that, you know, this area really needed a lot more research that, you know, the treatment, um, you know, approach sometimes is still controversial, whether people are recommending that it's, you know, it'd be more of a psychological treatment, trying to treat anxiety or depression. Um, and so I was like, okay, this is something I should bring back. So I came back and started doing postdoc at UAB. Um, so I never did see Ryan while he was um, sort of on his journey, we met later. Um, and so when I came back to UAB, you know, I sort of recognize, you know, this is something that I'd like to start expanding as well. And so this is where eventually someone was like, hey, you should meet Ryan. It's an interesting thing because it's not well understood, right? And so for, you know, and I, I think I can speak fairly honestly and say it's fairly frustrating for us that do understand it because the treatments are there to be had. You know, they're, they're just, there wasn't a lot of support for the type of thing that I was talking about, not because people didn't care, but because people didn't understand it. I'm, I'm, you know, sort of told, hey, look, you know, probably not going to be something that we do here. And, and literally it had to have been within the next 24 or 48 hours. I, the same person that told me that calls me and they're like, hey, do you know Dr. Phobian? Mm -mm. We had a meeting and, and it was pretty interesting because we were sitting there and we were, you know, two kindred spirits talking about things that, you know, she's passionate about from a medical standpoint and, and seeing patients get better in a world where people think that they're, you know, they're sort of dealing with a lot in life that's permanent. And I, I have the same experience from a patient's point of view. And so uh, it was pretty interesting. She was like, you know, I'm just trying to figure out where the the physical therapists are that would be interested in this i was looking at spain across the street and i was able to point across and i was somewhat interesting to them because i had you know gone in crippled i had walked out crippled and then you know came back as as a you know a, i think there was there was a uh, opportunity to speak at the one of their events as a patient that had recovered somewhere else. Dr. Fobian was able to, to link up with the, the folks at Spain and, and sort of set the ball rolling on, you know, what hopefully will be a fantastic program for UAB, but not just for UAB, but for the next patient that, that can be helped. So Dr. Fobian, how do you get the ball rolling in that regards and get partnerships within the university to start looking at people that have the transverse myelitis like Ryan or somebody in similar conditions. When I met with Ryan and he connected me 
with Jamie Wade, that was, that was wonderful. Jamie Wade has, she is the director of outpatient rehab services, I think is her official title. And so she has been very interested in this from the beginning um, and has really helped me make those connections um, with the PTs, OTs, speech therapists that were at the same time struggling with, you know, we, we have these patients that we know, you know, they're struggling with these symptoms and, you know, how can we, you know, really help and develop the best therapy, the rehab therapy for them, you know, to, to improve. So being able to sort of partner with them and that's really sort of where it started was where we started meeting and, and discussing way. Sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll have at this point now, you know, our goal is to start like a clear interdisciplinary clinic where when we do the intakes for patients who need physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, that we're able to do that intake, that first meet on the very same day. So they'll meet with both us and with PTOT speech. We meet as a group you know, we can, you know, start the making their plan together because everyone's symptoms are a little different. And so being able to really meet together, individualize their plan and then put them into our outpatient therapies, but then can continue to meet as that group um, and discuss the ongoing cases that we have. So it, it streamlines, you know, the, the communication and, and their treatment plan between providers. And so the goal is to do that where we all meet together. We've been doing that in a more informal way where we, they don't meet us on the same time, but you know, if they're in outpatient PTOT speech, they're also seeing one of the psychologists um, as well to be able to, and, and then we can communicate. It's neuro, it's physiological, it's so there's physical and there's psychological, right? And so one of the things that when a, a patient that is crippled and you can't see why, is like, oh, well, they, you know, send them over to the psychiatrist because there, there's some sort of choice that's being made here. It, it is a very sensitive subject to those of us that are patients or, or have been patients that, oh, they're just sending me to the site because they think I'm nuts. And, uh, and so like, I, if there's a message coming out of this, that psych is part of the interdisciplinary um you know, therapy that goes in and it, it's, it's, it's necessary and needed, but it's not the traditional psychological um, type therapy that where you're sitting at the couch and they're just convincing you of things. And that's what I'm a big believer in that as well. Uh, but it's different than that. And until the last 15 years, we really haven't had really great research in functional neurological disorders. It was just, I don't know. I don't know why, because I think it was difficult and confusing. I'm not sure, but it's the second most common diagnosis in neurology clinics right behind headaches. So this is very prevalent, but you never hear about it. And it ha it was really under research. So people started researching it as they did. It really came out, started seeing that a lot of patients don't have a history of trauma or stress or comorbid psych, you know, psychopathology, anxiety, or depression. And so if you do really thorough psychiatric evaluations with patients with FND, you just, you won't find any of that in a third of that. And that's also assuming that the other two thirds that it's causing this symptom because, you know, the, the rates overall, just in the general population of something like anxiety and depression are really high. And so you start adding all of these things together and you're going to get really big pieces of the population anyway. Um, and so, you know, that doesn't mean that it's actually causing your your 
functional symptom 10 years later with the new, our new diagnostic criteria that came out with our, the DSM five in 2013, they changed the diagnostic criteria from requiring a preceding stressor to, you know, not basically to where it goes from being in a diagnosis of exclusion and it requires the stressor to it being incompatible with medical conditions. So like in Ryan's case, being able to bounce a ball and his gait, you know, goes back to normal that's incompatible with a lot of all neurological conditions, right? So there's this, there are these signs that you can actually see like, oh, this fits a functional neurological disorder instead of, instead of just making it a diagnosis of exclusion. With the limited amount of research that has been done, and obviously you had said that it's starting to pick up over the last decade and a half, where is the research going to figure out why these things happen and, and what to do with them? So there is um, a lot of imaging going on. You know, the 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 problem we have with the the imaging data we, we have right now is sample size. The sample sizes are small, um, and then two is we we're getting patients that already have FND diagnoses, and so it's hard to pe- to piece apart like what's the chicken or the egg. What happened because you developed FND and now you have this you know, structural or functional change in your brain versus what was there before that, you know, sort of led to that. And so, so being able to do research that sort of pieces apart those aspects. Um, and then, you know, more, definitely more treatment, you know, I think sometimes being able to, there, there are all these risk factors that we know that, are associated with it. And so as we continue to do these treatments, being able to see, first of all, if the, you know, we're, we're trying to target like your perceived sense of control, being able to give you that control over symptoms again, or your attention to the symptoms, or, you know, these things that we know are, are risk factors. But once we have treatments that are working and that are trying to target those, are they really changing those? And is that associated with their, their change in symptoms? And so that again, you know, where we have trouble knowing before, you know, we're not seeing these patients before they get the symptoms, but when those are associated with that change in treatment, we can start telling like, okay, this is, this is that, the, the issue that we need to target. That's really probably helping the symptoms onset and continue. Ryan, you probably will never know what triggered the onset. I don't care. It's very liberal. It's a, it, it is, when, when you heard, like, it's a very odd thing in medicine to hear, we don't care what caused it, but we can fix it. And, and like, as a patient, you know, I, I care that it, like, we can fix it. And so I don't live with the, the threat of it coming back or whatever. I know if it does, there's, you know, there's some percentage of a chance that it could come back or whatever, but it's fixable. I went to Mayo to figure, to get the final answer, right, on what the cause was. And I left without a care in the world about what the cause was. I just cared about, you know, it, it, was, it was a very, it's a very different way of thinking about it, but I don't think about the cause. I thought about that for 18 months, racking my brain, trying to figure out what it was. And, you know, thinking about it further isn't going to get there. Is your transverse myelitis now completely behind you or is there a chance it could be triggered again? I mean, you know, the question is, is, was it really transverse myelitis? And I don't like, so that was my diagnosis. It was always a diagnosis out of diagnosed out of exclusion. And, and so I don't think about it anymore. I mean, that was, that was, 
it was a a good diagnosis at the time and and because it was it kept me in the system i mean that that's the real benefit of it is is it wasn't just you know nobody threw their hands up and said eh, we don't know figure it out somewhere else i mean that wasn't the case it was a diagnosis out of exclusion um, that allowed me to stay in the system, um, which is which is what I needed. Dr. Fobian, how common are these types of issues where you see those symptoms like Ryan, where he just couldn't move his legs anymore? They're very common. So it is the second most common diagnosis in neurology clinics and outpatient neurology clinics. So it's hard to track that, you know, because you get odd diagnoses in the in the medical record but we tried to go through and and pick that out from uabs and it looks like it's maybe the third most common diagnosis in maybe uab neurology and so it is it is very common which is crazy why we never hear anything about it it yeah it it happens a lot i um we get lots of referrals for for it both at uab and now from outside as well so at this point, the program is just building and getting better. Absolutely. Yeah. Our, you know, we, we have all of the pieces there. We're hoping to be able to collaborate, you know, more on the same day, um, integrate that even more and start adding, you know, additional people just because, you know, without, we haven't advertised it at all. I mean, every, all of the patients that we're getting right now have been, you know, from UAB and from word of mouth. And right now we have a, a pretty big wait list and um, it's and it's growing. The concept of rehab is generally like this long process of like building back strength and, you know, sort of this this rebuild, if you will. And and the the I mean, the, the thing that I've seen and, and that was so interesting about what Dr. Fobian and, and the folks at Spain are doing is that the results are so quick or, you know, for not for everybody, but for most it, generally the results are quick as compared to traditional re, uh, to, to traditional rehabilitation. When a lot of times the, the severity of the issue is much more profound than what you're dealing with in traditional uh, rehabilitation. You have still kind of stayed connected with Spain, yep. with Dr. Fobian. And sometimes you serve as a resource for others that might be going through some kind of neuro issue. What words do you have for those individuals to kind of put them at ease and to get them invited into UAB? I probably get, you know, it's about a call a quarter where I, you know, meet somebody new that is dealing with the neurologic world where they don't have a lot of answers. And it, it's, you know, when, when I talk to them, it's almost a reverse message. They, their anxiety is super high because they're in this world. They've got some severe sort of, you know, some severe ailment um, and they don't have any answers. And my, my, you know, my response to them is they're actually in the good spot right now. When you're in the gray world, you know, there's still hope for a full recovery. Uh, a lot of times when you're dealing with neurology and you get the definitive diagnosis that it's not reversible. And so when I'm talking to the, to the folks, the, the biggest blessing that I got was I didn't get the answer that I want, that I was looking for. I got, you know, continued test, continued sort of maneuvered around the system until I found the right therapy. And, and so 
the when you don't have the the, the definitive answer, there's actually still a lot of hope out there, and and don't give up on it. Nobody cares about your health like they do. Like they are, you know, nobody cares like like I do about my health. Nobody cares about your health like you do. So advocate for yourself. Make sure that you're you're within reason getting the best answers that you can and and then always looking for the next answer. That's Ryan Robinette and Dr. Aaron Fobian. Ryan is a 2006 graduate of the UAB Klatt School of Business, where he earned his MBA. He is currently the founder and principal of Multiply in Birmingham. Dr. Fobian has two degrees from the UAB College of Arts and Sciences, where she earned her MA in 2011 and PhD in 2012, both in psychology. Aaron is currently an assistant professor in the UAB School of Medicine's Department of Psychiatry. Ryan and Aaron have two completely different experiences with UAB, but both have good ideas of what it means to be a blazer. I know UAB from a lot of different perspectives, that, and, and I, I feel like I have a, quote, real relationship with UAB. And, and the one thing that I know is that it is always truly looking to serve the community in which it sits. And so may not do it at the at the pace that, that you know, I would like it to because I, I'm a patient advocate. A lot of people have asked me, what am I after? And I'm like, I want the next patient that can't get to Mayo to get the treatment that I got and not have to go there. And so I want that, you know, yesterday, but I, I also understand that, that things are complicated. I love having graduated from UAB and clearly I do because I came back um, and continued to stay here. I love how collaborative UAB is. Um, I love, you know, how like open and thoughtful the the university is and in the hospital for that matter is uh, about their students and their patients. Stay on top of all of our Green and Told episodes by listening in at alumni.uab.edu slash green and told. Have a story to share? Email greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for UAB alumni. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go Blazers.